You're listening to the Fuzzy Logic Science Show now. My name is Rod. And check your camera times this morning because we have a celebrity guest, uh, Mr. Aditya Chopra. G'day. Celebrity who's one day old, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but I've got to make it all, you know, I've got to play it for all it's worth. Yep. And uh, you are a, let me see now, I've got my note here, a PhD student from the Planetary Science Institute at the ANU and linked to the Mount Stromlo Observatory. That's right, and the Research School of Earth Sciences. So it's a partnership while studying the stars, you study the Earth and everything in between, I guess, including life. Wow, so you're kind of on the cusp of astronomy and biology, aren't you? That's right, yeah. And a fascinating story. And so what I want you to do now is to look at your hand, that's you on listening to the radio right now, and think, what is it that makes your hand? What goes in? What is the stuff of your body? And how does it differ from the stuff of the slime mold and the bacteria and the lower forms of life? I call them that. And where does it come from? (laughs) (laughs) And, of course, we're all smiling at each other with big, bright, white, shiny teeth. And the calcium comes from? Stars. Yeah, that's right. And also, during the show, we're going to give you little milestones in the broadcast because it takes about a second, or just under a second for me to say the word moon, and that's almost as long as it takes to get our signal past the moon. That's right. So if you think of the Apollo 11 mission when Mr. Armstrong landed on the moon, um, he said, Houston, the eagle has landed. One, two, three. Congratulations, Mr. Armstrong. One, two, three. Houston, what do we do next? One, two, three. So there's a three-second delay because it's 1.5 seconds to the moon, 1.5 seconds back. So that explains the uh, the slow conversation they had. Well, they weren't just that they were trying to compose their thoughts. <laughs> That's right. But there's this expanding sphere of radio waves uh, radiating out from the Earth as we speak. And uh, during the show, we're going to tell you where our broadcast is currently sitting. So people on the moon will be picking us up. And also we've got a... Uh, that would be news if someone was picking us up over there. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. I'm interested to get some feedback from our Martian listeners. And here's a quiz question for you because we're also going to be talking a little bit about oil and not quite the story you think it is about what happened at the deep water drilling rig. Uh, try that again. The drilling rig in the Gulf of Mexico, how you know it's spewing oil everywhere. Well, we're going to talk a little bit about the science behind the oil uh, expedition or uh, work that's going on there. And uh, here's a quiz question for you. Oil is now being consumed uh, globally at the rate of 1,000 barrels per, is it per second, per minute, per hour, or per day? Which of those is the correct description of how much oil we are currently using? And uh, also, we've got This Day in Science, as we always like to do on Fuzzy Logic, your science on a Sunday. And since we're talking astronomy, uh, on the 22nd of May, 1995, astronomer Amanda Bosch and Andrew Rivkin found two new moons of Saturn in a photo taken by the Hubble Space Telescope. Thinking about the Earth's moon, the Apollo 10 mission, we have an anniversary today for that. In fact, a few hours back at about 7 a.m. Canberra time, um, the Apollo 10 mission, which was a dry run for the Apollo 11 mission, um, was closest to the moon about 7 o'clock this morning and in 1969. And the Apollo 10 mission has a lot of highlights, and one that is really interesting, it was the first color broadcast 
live from space on that mission. Wow. Now, interesting thing about that uh, moon landing is, and we've talked about this on Fuzzy because we had a show which was the anniversary of the moon landing itself. <laughs> and I recall describing on that how there was a gravitational anomaly on the moon and it put the Apollo 11 astronauts a few hundred metres or uh, some distance out. I think it, I can't remember that it accelerated them or slowed them as they went around this anomaly. So what that meant was... They weren't landing on the nice billiard ball smooth bit of the moon they thought they were going to. It was over this boulder strewn area. That's right. And I mean, we have come a long way since then. Uh, recently, there was a mission that was sent to the moon which actually quite precisely measured the gravitational uh, field around the moon so that when we go back next time in a few years to decades, mm-hmm. we will know better to skip over the rocks I guess. Now we think the moon is, was actually created when it was the earth was blasted by a big lump of something and, and the whole lot splattered off into into form the moon. Is that That's right. So about a Mars sized body, so about uh, a third of the size of the earth uh, hit the earth about 4.5 billion years ago mm-hmm. uh, between 4.5 and 4.2 billion years ago and that impact ejected a lot of stuff out um, and that coalesced around the Earth and eventually formed this big lump that we see out there today, the moon. I wonder how close that was to the start of life because that's going to be one of our themes. It's a very interesting uh, question and it's very surprising that, I mean, that moon forming impact was so big that it would have left the Earth on a molten state. Um, The surface would be complete molten as far as we know, no life could survive that. So it would have sterilized the Earth. And soon after that, within a few hundred million years, we do see the first evidence for life, which is very interesting because, you know, life got started pretty much as soon as it could. That's amazing. I wonder, do you give any credence to this idea that the Earth was seeded by comet, uh, the dust of comets that brought in the more complex carbon compounds, the methanes and the ammonia and stuff like that? That's right. In fact, in 1997, we had a Martian meteorite found in the Antarctic, and that was uh, the ALH uh, 8082001, I think it was. Um, they found a whole bunch of amino acids, and that set off this field of astrobiology. Got everyone excited because for the first time we saw these complex organics coming in from space. So a lot of people working on that idea and talking about, is there enough of this material coming from space that could get life kick-started? It's an amazing thought, isn't it? And oh, by the way, we our signal has just sped past Mercury. It was like five minutes after, or 5.8 minutes after the start of our transmission, which is a little bit before where we are right now. And so the uh, people, the Mercury life forms are, are now listening to us. <laughs> <laughs> um, and by the way, these calculations that I'm using, I ha- had to go to a website to work out where the planets are currently sitting in relation to the Earth. So as long as I've got that correct, because it'll vary an enormous amount. If we're on the same side of the sun, it will be close, and if they're on the opposite side. Uh, so the uh, planet Mercury is currently uh, 58 million kilometres from the sun and 104 kilometres away from here, us here on Earth. 
And, uh, all right, look, since we're talking about rotating, I know this has nothing to do with science, but you could talk about it being, uh, you know, food. And um, anyway, uh, the first revolving restaurant, I have to throw that in because it's a nice quirky <laughs> one. In 1961, the top of the needle restaurant and the Space Needle, Seattle, Washington, was dedicated. And it was the first revolving restaurant in the United States, 500 feet above the ground. And it's I really a beautiful site. I went there um, last year, mm-hmm. mid last year. And it's a wonderful place to visit if you get a chance to go to Seattle. Yeah? Yeah, it's a beautiful city. I want to get in one of those things and spin it up so all the patrons get <laughs> pinned to the windows. Just possibly. In fact, yesterday I came across yeah. this idea that if you were at the equator of the Earth and the Earth was spinning 17 times faster, uh, which would mean we would have a day of about 84 minutes, not 24 hours, in that case people would actually be spun out of the Earth. Oh, really? Yeah, it's only 17 times faster, and there you have it. That would be quite a ride. Now, some of the planets do spin very fast relative to their diameter, don't they? So they're actually squashed spheres or oblate spheroids. Isn't that the technical term? That's right. I mean, even the Earth uh, at the equator, think of a tennis ball, and it's quite flat, slightly flatter, uh, you know, oblate around the equator on the Earth itself. But if you think of Jupiter, which has a day just lasting 10 hours, so within a good winter's night, you could actually see Jupiter do a full rotation. If you're looking at it through a telescope, that is quite uh, oblate as well. Ah, and, and we have seen other planets around other stars which rotate even faster, and you can pick out their oblateness uh, quite easily. Now, imagine the Coriolis effect going on there. <laughs> so uh, just to explain what that means, you've heard this story that toilet water goes down uh, clockwise in the southern hemisphere and, and anti-clockwise in the northern hemisphere. Well, it doesn't really. The effect is so slight. That's right. Ha- they did a measurement at MIT a few years back where they tried to create a very stable bathtub so that they got rid of any effects from... Uh, fluctuations of wind or temperature or density of the water and then they let that coriolis effect show its do its job and they did detect a very small uh, signal as where the water started to spin clockwise if I remember correctly in the northern hemisphere but it's a very small effect now there was there was some character I think it was uh, who's that Monty Python bloke who does his round the world thing and he, the, the equator runs through, I think it was Kenya or somewhere like that, and there's a bloke there and he's doing a bit of a show and he says, and there's, there's this sign here and it says, there's the equator here, and he takes a few steps on one side and he gets his bowl and the water goes down one way and he goes to the other <laughs> side and he says, look, now the water's going the other way. Yes. <laughs> if only it were that easy, it would be good fun. <laughs> uh, but I was thinking, though, uh, the Coriolis effect being this thing that causes the... Uh, if you're travelling from north to south, you get spun uh, left or right. I can't remember mm-hmm. which one it is uh, because of spinning. If imagine you're sitting on a radio or you had an old turntable and you put a marble on it and you roll the marble off the, off the centre and it, will, it won't go straight off. It'll curve mm-hmm. as, as it rolls off. But on Jupiter, if it spins that fast... Uh, it must do hellish things to the climate conditions there. It certainly does, and that's what we see in the pans of Jupiter. Uh, the big storms, there's a big storm that's been going on for about 300 year, 400 years now. Galileo first observed it, the Great Red Storm, in which you could fit about 300 Earths within that storm. And there are big storms on Jupiter that have been going on, and that's because of this reason of Jupiter's high spin rate. So, but also on Earth, it accounts for why we uh, cyclones go. I think it's clockwise mm-hmm. in the southern and anti-clockwise. In I the, think so. In the northern hemisphere. Yep. Uh, 
Uh, and I've heard, and I think this may be true, that an airline pilot must take it into account even because their, their flight path is slightly nudged. Maybe the effect is so slight that it's, it's not really enough to sort of worry about, but I'm not sure. I'm not sure either, but it sounds plausible. But Eddie, oh, hang on. We've just, uh, I've, missed, uh, I've missed one of our little milestones here. Uh, we're just shot past Venus uh, at 11.41, if we start at 11.30, 11.4 minutes into our broadcast, and also past the sun at 11.38. I don't think anybody lives on the sun, but they could be on uh, Venus. And we're going to, the next planet we'll be heading towards is Mars, and that won't be until quarter past 12. So the Martians are going to miss the joys of fuzzy for another 15 or 30 minutes or thereabouts. Uh, now, okay, this one has, here's another couple of really quirky ones. I don't think we can, we can really blend these into the theme of the show, but I'm going to do them because they're fun, and we like to have fun. Uh, the canned rattlesnake. In 1931, the first sale of canned rattlesnake meat was made by George Kenneth End of Arcadia, Florida. And cans were packed in March 1931, the first served at the American Legionnaire's dinner. Mmm, sounds tasty. Oh. Actually, you could probably squeeze that into the theme if we think about what we're going to be discussing later on, which is what it is that makes up the substance of bodies. I will hang on to that thought for a moment because I have another quirky one. This one is a toothpaste tube, and now, of course, they're all made of uh, plastic. But in 1892, Dr. Washington Sheffield, a dentist of New London, Connecticut, USA, invented the collapsible, collapsible metal toothpaste tube, which was later manufactured by his tube corp. And within the same year in Great Britain, where toothpaste was formerly sold in round pots, Beecham's toothpaste uh, was packaged for sale in collapsible tubes. And our last one, we'll, we'll finish up with this one. The reclining chair. In 1841, Henry Kennedy, a cabinet maker and upholsterer of Philadelphia, was issued with the first US patent for a reclining chair. And I'm going to recline into one now. Good on him to invent that for us. Eddie, you... Uh, <laughs> Luckily, someone's done it for us. Eddie, um, we're talking about planets again. You said that uh, before the show, one is being sucked into a star. That's right. This is a really interesting news. So this week in, in Science, um, they published a paper where they have seen the planet WASP-12b, which is so big and so close to its host star that it's losing its atmosphere to the star. Now, that seems all right, but the thing is, what caught my attention was... It, they predict it's losing about seven Earth oceans worth of mass to its star. So within a few thousands to maybe a million years or so, that planet would have been gobbled up by its ever-increasing um, star in size. W will it, is it gobbling up just the uh, the gases in the liquids, or is it, would it be gobbling up the hard surface of it as well? Now, the planet is so close. So this is what we call a hot Jupiter, uh, quite close to its star. And it's so close that we don't think there would be any solid surface uh, left uh, being that close, be so hot, and most of it is just gas. Uh, rather than call it an atmosphere like on Earth where you have solid and then gas atmosphere on top of it, they call it the exosphere, um, uh, which is just made of hot plasma, essentially. So is there, there is a no solid core to one of these planets? No, because it's so hot that you, as you go in, like, like for Jupiter and Saturn, uh, we don't think they have a solid core. They may have a molten uh, iron, small iron core, maybe molten helium core as well, I think it is. Mm -hmm. um, and you, know, you could just sink right through and 
it'd be a pretty unpleasant place to be, of course. And is it like a, a like a, a baby star that never actually formed? I mean, it's it's getting close or towards the, the amount of mass you need for a star, isn't it? Well, how far off would it be, do you think? Jupiter, if you think about it, um, is quite close to being uh, one of the smallest stars possible, which is a brown dwarf. And you can see that in the color of Jupiter, it looks slightly brown. But Jupiter would have to be 13 times bigger to actually start this nuclear burning process so it could produce its own light and energy. Um, it didn't get that far. Even if all the other planets in the solar system were combined, we still wouldn't have the 13 um, Jupiter masses worth of material so that Jupiter could become a, ah. an, a star on its own. But there are a lot of stars in the night sky that uh, have had that process take place, and they're called binary stars. Um, often through the naked eye, when you look at it, you don't see them as two stars. But if you look through a telescope, um, one star that comes to my mind is Alpha Centauri, which uh, system which contains Proxima Centauri, the nearest star, uh, four light years away. So it would take people possibly living there um, about four years to get our message. But they live in a triple star system, of which you th see through a telescope, you'll see two binary stars. Wow. And I wonder if those things would suck up all the matter you needed to make a planet. So they'd probably be fairly sparse in terms of their planets, would they? Do we know if there are any planets around those ones? We are still working on those models of planetary formation. Uh, it does not mean that planets do not form there. You might find different sort of planets, fewer um, rocky ones than you find around the solar system. But it's, it's a work that's ongoing, and we're not sure about that. So would the would it be the arrangement of these things be uh, a little bit like our own solar system where you've got the sun in the centre and then the things orbiting around it? Or are they, if they're close to the same mass, they're, they're like ice skaters, you know, locked and spinning around each other? The, is it, is it weird, weird kind of orbits and things going on? It is weird kind of orbit. Now, my uh, supervisor, Charlie Lineview, has been working on this around the Alpha Centauri system on the dynamics of possible planets out there. Um, and if you think about the movie Avatar, um, they had the planet Pandora, which is a gas giant, and around it is a moon, an Earth-like moon, uh, which has a rocky um, thing. Now, Avatar is about seven years late in its ideas because about seven years ago, scientists found that around the Alpha Centauri system, such a planet does not exist. And they are pretty confident that they haven't missed uh, anything there. Oh. Um, and coming back to your idea of what the possible geometry of the planets around Alpha Centauri would be, it, it just depends on who you ask today. <laughs> I could imagine it being... I have kind of this vision of... Uh, Dodgem cars, you know, these, uh, this, this planet zinging, you know, getting really confused, not having a regular orbit around one, but a, a bit around one, and then doing a, like a, a dosey do and dancing its way around another one. And I, I can't really imagine what it would look like. Yeah, it, it would have to be stabilized because planets normally form within a few hundred million years after the star forms. And, you know, the only remaining stuff are ones in stable orbits, just like in the solar system. So in the early solar system, you had things being ejected away um, because of the large mass of Jupiter and Saturn into the Oort cloud and Kupia belt objects. Um, the remaining eight planets that we see today, they are quite stable in their orbits. Well, I I love to see... This is what I love about astronomy in my... I often say on, on uh, uh, fuzzy logic that my favourite... 
website is a, is a site called the Astronomy Picture of the Day, and it never ceases to amaze me the new and bizarre constructions there are out there in the solar system or out in the galaxies. Mm-hmm. Weird combination of things we never thought was possible. And uh, we're going to bring some more of that to you. You're listening to the Fuzzy Logic Science Show on uh, Community Radio. 2XX 98.3 FM. My name is Rod, and we're talking stars and the stuff of stars. And my guest today is Aditya Chopra, today in the Canberra Times, PhD student of the Planetary Science Institute at the ANU. And when we come back, we're going to talk about uh, a little bit about the oil well, the bit of the science behind what's going on at uh, the deep water in the Gulf of Mexico. And Spiderbait here on Fuzzy Logic Science Show on Community Radio 2XX 98.3 FM. And, Eddie, I have a little special for you here. A few weeks ago, we had Dr. Charlie Lineweaver and my friend <laughs> Tom McCoy. G'day, Tom. Uh, has assembled this promo that we recorded during the show. So check this, Dr. Charlie Lineweaver. Hi, I'm Charlie Lineweaver, and you're listening to Community Radio 2XX. But how are we doing that? Our signal is speeding across the ether at the speed of light. Only, there is no ether. And the sound is rattling around your ears, buzzing through your neurons. You're a vast assembly of protons, atoms, quarks. Quantum weirdness, that's what you are. The universe is a strange place. Stranger than you imagine, stranger than you can imagine. I'm Charlie Lineweaver, and I recommend you tune in to Fuzzy Logic on Sundays at 11.30 a.m. on 2XX. That's us. <laughs> How do you like that? Pretty cool, hey? Pretty cool, huh? Good. See, it's so much fun working with a person like him. Oh, yes, he was uh, definitely a very memorable guest we've had on uh, Fuzzy Logic. And coming up in June, we have Dr. Philip Nicholson. Uh, Phil Nicholson. Uh, he's uh, visiting us from the Cornell University, where he's uh, as a distinguished visitor at the ANU. And uh, he is an expert on the Cassini missions and how moons on Saturn's um, function and work. Now, I will remember going to a public lecture with the director of the Galileo mission, and it was just amazing. And to sit in the lecture theatre there with someone who was so close to this, and uh, I looked up at the big screen of the large images, and on the Astronomy Picture of the Day website you see these things, and to have this description of what's going on down there was just incredible. It's amazing. I mean, these projects, the science projects, I was at the Johnson Space Center recently, and some of the technical things that they do, they are no uh, mean achievement. Um, one news that just has come in in the last week or so is the Voyager 2 um, probe, which is in a bit of trouble because it's been scrambling the information that's been sending out to us, which takes about, I think, somewhere between 20 hours or so for the signal to reach us. And it was launched 33 years ago, and it was designed to just visit Saturn and Jupiter, but its mission's been extended almost indefinitely now. And uh, maybe it on a, is it in its last moment, maybe not. Maybe the engineers can figure something out and get the message, the science out of it again. I think it's just amazing. Imagine out there in the dark depths of space, inky blackness, because our sun would be just a tiny pinprick, and this lonely little thing out there with little glistening bits of metal on it, and it's bravely sending us these signals. It's almost out of our solar system. It's at the boundary of the heliosphere, 
and a little bit more within the next couple of years they think it's going to officially enter interstellar space that is on its way to the nearest star well i'm going to hitch a ride to interstellar <laughs> space only um, if it could well um at this conference i was at we had um an, uh, someone suggest on the next 50 years in uh, space travel and he suggested that the 1000th space tourist will be out by 2050 and perhaps by 2060 we could have a first manned voyage to alpha centauri wow that would be quite a trip it would be lovely uh, i would sign up for it <laughs> <laughs> yes well i would probably need a new incarnation of myself to make it there um <laughs> oh, you never know uh, my warranty will have expired by then or right, there's no way to segue into this next topic but i really do want to talk about the uh, oil thing in uh, the gulf of mexico So let, let let's do that because it is an interesting story and we're not going to go into the normal bit about you know what a mess it's making of the fisheries and the oil that's spraying everywhere. I wanted to talk about why it actually happened. And the fact is that it's a deep well a very deep water uh, exploration and and the technical challenges in building these things is actually very great. And to me it shows the desperation with which we are now pursuing our oil our thirst for oil and by the way Remember our quiz question was how many um barrels of oil are we using was it uh 1000 barrels per second per minute per hour or per day I'm going to put my bets on second yes kaching oh excellent well done yes we are using 1000 barrels per second so we're during the show we're counting off our distances to the planets Well, if you want to count out how many barrels of oil the world cons- will consume, multiply the number of seconds in the fuzzy logic science show by 1000 and you will get the answer. That's a pretty terrifying number. So we are desperate for oil and we have had uh some shows in which we've discussed this a bit more about it. But the uh, Deepwater Horizon is a fifth generation ultra deep water dynamically positioned column stabilized semi-submersible mobile offshore rig. How's that for a mouthful? Cost Maybe tri- that's why it went wrong. <laughs> <laughs> well, it does sound like a spec for a new computer or a fancy car. It costs three hundred and fifty million dollars uh, US, I guess that is, and it could operate in waters two thousand four hundred meters deep and a maximum drill depth of, I don't know, what do you reckon, Addy? What do you reckon a, a, a deep drill would be I would think it'd be in the few kilometers range maybe 5 to 10 kilometers yeah you you're you're good 9.1 kilometers it is so according to interviews with rig workers conducted during the BP's internal investigation a bubble of methane gas escaped from the well and shot up the drill column expanding quickly as it burst through several seals and barriers before exploding So a constant theme was that gas kicks is what they call them so a, a little bubble of gas that they hit and it shoots the pressure up enormously and that hits the thing they call the blowout preventer and the invention and new our and use of blowout preventers by the way is were instrumental in expanding uh, the uh, ending oil gushes so in the old days when they started you see those pictures of the oil wells blowing up and big fountains of oil mm-hmm. Uh these things basically release the pressure or they block the oil well down at the source and there's a couple of varieties of how these things work but this one failed but the other thing that was going on was that they used a new sort of cement down there so they had a casing 7 inches in diameter and it was sealed with cement in 
cement pumped in by Halliburton, and it was a new kind, as I say. And they've had 39 fires or explosions offshore in the Gulf of Mexico in the first five months of 2009. And there have been numerous uh, previous spills and fires on the deep water horizon. That's the rig that blew up. And uh, they have been issued for citations, acknowledged, this is quote, acknowledge pollution source by the Coast Guard 18 times between 2000 and 2010. And these fires were not considered unusual, which finds, I find quite a remarkable thing. Mm. The Deepwater Horizon had serious incidents in 2008 where 77 people were evacuated from the rig after it started listing because a section of pipe was accidentally removed from the ballast system. Well, that's probably one of the good things that's going to come from this very unfortunate event. Uh, it's going to be much more regulation, not just in the U.S., but around the world when it comes to deep-sea drilling or even land-based oil drilling yeah. and exploration. And, and my memory goes back to the debate we had on the about the uh, Great Barrier Reef mm-hmm. oil exploration, and there was, a you know, in the 70s, 80s, I think, discussion about whether we'd be going for oil there. Well, as we get more and more desperate for oil, we are going to take greater and greater risks to actually get hold of the stuff. Okay. Now, um, you have heard stories about the uh, their attempts to block this thing, so gonna, they lower this big cap over it, and uh, and they talked about this ice blocking it up. Well, it's in the Gulf of Mexico. Isn't that a bit weird that there'd be what they call this ice? The methane, cl- the clatterate, I, I think you're referring to, and... They are a really funny sort of thing. That's because the pressure at the bottom of the ocean is so high from all that water above it that you can actually form a form of ice which could trap the gas, methane, in it. So the methane clutterates. In fact, a lot of it is a source of energy for really exotic forms of life at that depth. Ah, really? So they actively use those things down there. That's right. And it has been talked about as being a possible source for humans to get, but there's huge implications of doing it. That's right. You'll be releasing, I mean, from a globe ex- anthropogenic global warming point of view, bringing all that methane into the atmosphere would be, uh, again, n- not uh, would be a risky business if we didn't know what we were doing. Um, the other thing to think about is... Um, by the sea level temperatures increasing, some people have been predicting that these methane clatterates made of ice would actually melt uh, in any case and release some of that methane into the oceans and eventually into the atmosphere. And this is one of those positive feedback things. That's right. And don't forget, methane is more potent as a greenhouse gas than carbon dioxide. Mm-hmm. Even if it's shorter-lived, but uh, we don't want it in the atmosphere. Mm-hmm. So just to explain a bit further about the, uh, the clathrate, you call it, mm-hmm. or methane hydrate is another term, uh, it's a crystalline solid consisting of gas molecules, usually methane, surrounded by a cage of water molecules, and it looks very much like water ice. And this stuff came up, that dome that they lowered over the oil head, and uh, and blocked the little valve that they had where they were going to pump the oil off. Uh, so they had to deal with that. Now I have here also a bit of a story which explains, talks about what actually happened on the well, and it's a fun, quite a remarkable bit of a description. So I'm going to read it to you. It's reasonably long, but uh, it was, as I say, it's quite an impressive story here, and it's by David Hammer and Mark Schleffstein from a site called NOLA.com, if you want to look that up, NOLA.com. It says, Three witnesses reported gathering by B describe what happened next. A geyser of water shot 240 feet into the air, he said, followed by gas that spills 
out of the moon pool area onto the drill deck and begins spreading. They can smell it, they can see it, but at this stage it does not ignite. It looks like ice slush and they can see gas emanating. That would be our cleth rays. The next thing workers saw on the drill floor were three accounts say the workers know that there's trouble because mud can only be coming from 10,000 feet down, not from the riser where uh, it can block the gas kick. Uh, at this point, calls come from the rig asking for more mud, and the transcripts show I'm certain these radio calls will ultimately be traced and produced. This is at 7 p.m. And the reason nothing ignited initially is that by 2193-foot moon pool, a well in the centre of the drill ship is carefully designed to remove any sources of sparks. But in the mud room, so remember they're pumping mud down to block this thing, and the galley and elsewhere there are pumps with exposed metal parts, and soon the gas did ignite, and when it came into contact with those, the descriptions in the transcripts are dramatic. B said that the first explosion occurred in the mud pit room, a room where drilling mud is mixed and stored in big bins. The two engineers responding to the request for more mud were attempting to control the runaway well were killed instantly. An explosion blew out the wall leading to the galley where the party was being held. A party wow. was being held. and guess <laughs> At what? the oil rig, huh? <laughs> At the oil rig, yeah. And uh, these oil rigs are pretty... Amazing places to it. There's a book out, I can't remember what it's called, uh, about life on an oil rig. And this is pretty, it's a heavy duty place to work. You think your work is a, <laughs> yeah, the, the, the fatalities and accidents. So this party is to celebrate the Transocean Deep Water Horizon going for seven years without an accident. Present were several BP engineers or executives who travelled to the rig for the celebration. The explosion hurls them against the other wall of the galley. And here's where I broke down when I read it. It describes bodies being broken, necks gashed, and people bleeding, and everybody's in the dark. And people are screaming for help. And people are busy helping their comrades to get into two lifeboats. And people in the lifeboats are screaming, we've got to get out of here. But the lifeboats aren't full. The doors slam and they drop the lifeboats as they do. They can see some of their colleagues jumping into the sea. They can see their outlines because the rig is burning behind them. Now, how high was this uh, oil well off the, off the surface of the water? It's quite a jump, I would imagine. Probably a few hundred metres, I would think, at least at jumping from the top of Telstra Tower down to Black Mountain. Yeah, well, you probably wouldn't survive that heating water from that height, would you? And back on the drill floor, all hell bro- has broken loose. Explosions are propagating from the mud pit room back up towards them, and at that point, one transcript that's obviously been an observer heading towards the lifeboat says the drill floor disappears in a ball of flame. At that point, the three on-board transcripts stop. And there you go. That's the story from the deep water oil rig in the Gulf of Mexico and going on as we speak. I think with that cheery note, we'll take another music break and what seems more appropriate than uh, Doctor Who here on Fuzzy Logic Science Show. My name is Rod. My guest today is PhD student Aditya Chopra from the Planetary Science Institute of the ANU. 
Uh, suitably techno music here for the Fuzzy Logic Science, so your science on a Sunday on 2XX 98.3 FM. My name is Rod, my guest today is Aditya Chopra, and uh, check out story in the Camp Times this morning about Aditya, and it describes his research, and uh, you may not notice, but actually I also have a mention in the Camera Times this morning, although I'm not named, and that is I gave the question to uh, Nisa for today's science question and the question I asked was uh, we recently celebrated the 50th anniversary of the laser and do we know if lasers ever occur in nature and if you want to find out read the Canva Times but I think Aditya you might have a, a, a bit of a, an opinion on that one a bit of knowledge but we'll keep it for the reader to go and find out either through the, the Canva Times or perhaps the internet yeah, you, you should do that because uh, you can uh, hear Aditya now, but you can also read his story in the Times. So, now you've just come back from this conference, and actually before we do that, we are about to hit Mars. And yes, in about thir- uh, 45 seconds, our signal is going past Mars from the beginning of the show. So, welcome all Martians. So, uh, about uh, two weeks ago, we were at the biggest astrobiology conference in the universe, apparently, in Houston, Texas, and um, it was a really, it's, it's the largest conference for the astrobiology community to come about and collaborate and know about the latest research that's taking place. Uh, some of these things have been going on behind in the labs, but uh, only now have they come to a stage where they are starting to reveal some of the latest discoveries. Now, one thing that caught my attention in, on the first day of the conference was um, a talk by Professor Nicholas Hudd at the Georgia Tech University who gave us a recipe for the origin of life. Um, so if you have these ingredients handy in your kitchen, get started. And his recipe was, have your pen and pencil ready, it was one part hydrogen cyanide, now, where do you get hydrogen cyanide from? If some of you remember, hydrogen cyanide is extremely toxic to humans. Even a sniff of it will kill you almost in- instantaneously. Uh, yeah, and that's what the Nazis use, isn't it, to, to uh, suicide? That's right, during, unfortunately, well, well, yes. Yeah. But you can get hydrogen cyanide to some degree from almonds. So the bitter taste in almonds is actually from hydrogen cyanide in that. Oh, I'm um, not going to eat almonds anymore. (laughs) But it's very little. So as long as you don't eat a lot, you should be fine. Um, So one part hydrogen cyanide, one part from haldehyde, which is the chemical they use to preserve um, not just bodies, but also uh, things in the biology lab. So if you can get hands-on from haldehyde. One part salt, just table salt will do. Um, And zero to hundred parts water. Now this is a tricky one. Because you can't just give it water and let the reaction go. Even if you gave it a lot of time, nothing would happen. What they have to do is keep cycling the amount of water. So boil it over, dry it down, and then wet it again. And they have to do that somewhere between a few thousands of times or a few billions of times to get enough material to get life kick-started. Now, I should mention they haven't actually created life in that form yet. But, um, you know, this is a recipe that they think is worth uh, pursuing further. Now, was it uh, Wilson or that person who made the glass flask back... That was Stanley Miller. Miller, So it was a Yuri Miller experiment. Um, And 
This is something along those lines, but they used a very different uh, chemistry and atmosphere because back then they believed the early Earth was made of ammonia and hydrogen and methane, whereas now the information is coming back that the atmosphere was slightly different and um, things like hydrogen cyanide and formaldehyde might be better to use. Uh, but don't disappoint because there are other people who have kind of invented life of their own. Uh, you might have heard recently on the news, uh, the Craig Venter Institute in the U.S. Uh, has announced that they have created, for the first time, a novel life form. Life form that was created by splicing together, attaching genes from very different organisms. So what they have done is taken a f short strands of DNA uh, sequences, put it into a computer, and created an organism using software on a computer and then put, reconstructed that DNA in a bacteria called Mycoplasma mycoides and um, this organism has after about 25 years of research finally been able to replicate and live on. What sort of uh, conditions does it need to live in? Is it so it's, it's, it's actually a very simple uh, bacteria just simply go, growing it in an agar plate um, just seaweed a nutrient is, is quite sufficient for it. So think of sea salt for bacteria. And uh, I've, I've heard that this has really upset a few people because they're worried about what happens when this gets out into the wild, that, um, you know, we're form creating an artificial form of life and that w what happens if it gets out of the lab? It, is, uh, it, is, it does pose to um, biologists around the world, especially synthetic biologists who are trying to create these novel life forms, a big ethical dilemma. Um, but I think it is fair to say that uh, most, if not all, scientists that, are, uh, that work on these things are not Frankenstein motivated. <laughs> um, they, there are regulations in place through regulatory bodies around the world which keep uh, make sure that these organisms that are created are kept in very safe environments uh, and so that they don't escape and have unintentional release into the environment. Now, wh one line of uh, research that I understand that he was doing is how much can you strip away and still have a functioning life? So what's the minimum scaffolding you need in order well, for so a life he, form? Their bacteria uses about a million base pairs, million sequence um, nucleotides in that genome, which is quite small. Um, and only uh, two weeks ago, there was another paper published in uh, Astrobiology, I think it was, where the s organism with the smallest genome has been found. This organism is called Armin, um, which means Archean Richmond Mine Acidophile Nanoorganism. It so turns out that the author on the paper, his last name is also Armin, so he might have uh, a <laughs> bit of self-interest uh, self <laughs> in that name. But anyway, that organism is a naturally occurring organism in the uh, Richmond Mine. Uh, it also has about a million base pairs, but it's called an ultra-small microbe. So not just a microbe, not a small microbe, but an ultra-small microbe because its size is about 200 nanometers. Now, it's, that's a hard number to conceptualize, but think of it this way. You can fit about 5,000 of these end-to-end -end on the tip of a human hair, <laughs> right? And um, these, now that we have started to get into the realm of nanoorganisms, I think uh, we will get closer to the answer. What is the minimal uh, genome size for life? Well, and that kind of fits nicely with your own research in a way because, as I understand it, and, and in the Canberra Times talks about this morning in, in Nisa in her story, 
that uh, you're looking at what you need to make up, uh, what elements you need, what are the ingredients that goes into a form of life. And I, I think you're saying there's some kind of a continuum from simple forms up to things like, well, we have the highest forms of life in the studio right now, you. <laughs> but the idea of us being the highest form of life is, is a sort of a self-interest uh, idea. Uh, we should not think of bacteria as or, you know, uh, other organisms uh, lower down the tree uh, as being uh, inferior to us in any way. But uh, we do think ancient life forms, which a lot of bacteria and archaea are, they accessed some basic elements like hydrogen, carbon, oxygen, nitrogen um, that were ab- abundantly available on the early earth and they, whereas a- as organisms evolved over the last 4 billion years they have been able to accessorize elements along the way so think, you know, the analogy I used with Nisa in the Canva Times was think of a novice chef learning to just bake a sponge cake and then as they go along um, put some chocolate icing, maybe strawberries and truffles if they were fancy. Oh, uh, that's, that's, that sounds good. Uh, so when, I, when we use the term a higher or a lower form of life, perhaps we're talking really about a continuum of complexity. So those forms of life are pretty simple. They don't have a lot in them, whereas you and I... Are you building up a, a chart on your wall with, which, which goes from left to right, simple way up to complicated? To some extent, yes. And um, that chart does not go linearly uh, from left to right, but rather goes radially. So as you get further away from the origin of life, you get more complex organisms. So in this model, if you think of a tree with root and trunk and leaves, all leaves on, on the tree are equivalent. And so bacteria, humans, plants, rabbits, earthworms, they all sit on this edge of the uh, sphere, the tree, and the stuff that is closer in towards the trunk, the stem and the root system are the ones that were the earliest organisms and uh, Ah. close to the origin of life. Now, they would be quite simple, and we know that that, uh, these uh, bacteria are are probably made of elements, uh, not uh, fancy ones like iron and copper and molybdenum and gold. Well, the question of complexity is, is a really interesting one, I think, and how, how you define complexity is, is itself a question, and is it the number of moving parts, the, the, the number of things you need to make it, is it the relationships of the things in the parts? I, I wonder if somebody has come up with a, some kind of a, a metric which can say you have a complexity rating of 98.2. Is anybody heading in that sort of direction? Well, to some extent we are, uh, because we're going to try and quantify the number of different elements that each organism uses, and we might find things like humans use about uh, 35 different elements, whereas the simplest bacteria use only 10 of them. Uh, That's work in progress, but other people have had ideas to do with what kind of metabolism goes in and what your energy sources so some organisms can extract energy from multiple sources be it you know methane and um, maybe ammonia and stuff whereas others are, uh, can only use the simplest uh, molecules ah so uh, maybe we can get uh, Charlie Lineweaver back on again uh, and I would like to to really explore the theme of what complexity actually means so h- how did you get into this research well we st- uh, we started with the question uh, like a lot of PhD students do in trying to find an interesting project to work on, 
what is the biggest question in science? And I guess the response was, what is life? Is a very fundamental question that people have been asking for millennia, um, ever since uh, humans first appeared on Earth, I guess. And um, that was a pretty big question for a PhD student to answer in about three to four years. So we narrowed it down to what is life made of. And um, by investigating the basic elements that make up life, the chemical elements, we will be able to trace the evolution of life over the last four billion years. Okay. Now, I want to uh, to change topics slightly mm-hmm. because uh, occasionally on uh, Fuzzy Logic, regular listeners may have picked up by now that I am prone to the occasional ad lib on one topic or another. <laughs> and believe it or not, I sometimes I'm actually wrong. Well, I'm not promising to not ad lib. I'm going to keep doing that. But when I find out where I'm wrong, I'm going to tell you. And this one, is it was quite a while back, and I was talking about where the spiral shape of galaxies comes from. And the, and the picture I described was one of where one car- galaxy is sitting nice and cosy, in the, you know, hurtling through space, and this other galaxy comes flying through the middle of it and leaves this kind of skid mark through the middle. And the galaxy is itself rotating... And so you have this like skid marks across it and you think of a straight line, but the galaxy rotates and it converts it into a spiral. Mm-hmm. Now, when uh, uh, after uh, we had Charlie Lineweaver on the show a while back and we were having lunch and I said, describe to him what I had said and he looked at me and he said, I would give you 58% for that answer. <laughs> <laughs> but you would pass, I guess, to some extent, which is, which is true, in fact. Yeah. So, uh, um, I, okay, so here we are. Addy, you've done some research on this for, and I'm very grateful for you. So what have you found out about how the spiral shape in galaxies actually uh, originates? So part of the thing that you described about two galaxies interacting, they do cause the galactic mergers uh, do cause, to some extent, uh, spiral structure and you can see things like the antenna galaxy if you look at its photograph you'll see a galaxy that has interacted and you see these tails around it but with regard to the spiral structure for example in the Milky Way or the Andromeda galaxy um, that's caused by a very different process uh, it must be said uh, I'm quoting Professor Ken Freeman here from the Mount Strom Observatory who's a world expert in this uh, topic he said that Addy you have asked a very uh, tricky question that I promise I cannot answer you um, but the description goes something along these lines they're working on these models is that imagine a disk of galaxy with stars and gas uh, in it and there is a over density or an under density, a bit of fluctuation at one point. Now this um, disturbance grows as the galaxy rotates and so it shears. Think of it like uh, we're talking about water in a bathtub and you know once you open the plug, the small disturbances add on, they shear and start forming vortices in the bathtub. Um, as they grow, over time, you'll see them as spiral arms. Now, it's important to uh, keep in mind that the structures that we see in the arms are not permanent. They only last for about a revolution around the galaxy. It takes about 200 million years or so 
for the spinal arm to rotate and within one revolution or so it has decayed, that disturbance has decayed. Ah, so if I can use my own metaphor here, would it be like, say, you were talking about sponge cake earlier mm-hmm. and we have a mixing bowl there and we put the flour and the water and the milk and the eggs and we stick the mix master in. Yep. And when you look into the bowl, do you see these little ripples developing around it? That's right. And, and, you, and you're saying that, and he's telling us that... Uh, Oh, well done too, by the way, and getting a, a world-class source for, for, for this story, uh, that the spirals are moving themselves, but the, I guess the individual suns are moving through. It's like a ripple uh, passing across the, the suns themselves, so... A that's sun right, might bunch up at one time and, and be more sparse than next. Is that? That's pretty much it. So um, stars, including our sun, are moving around the galaxy at about um, a speed which allows them to ro- complete a revolution uh, every few hundred million years. But these disturbances move independently of that. So, and what you see is what people in Canberra might sometimes experience is the phantom jam effect, where cars suddenly come into this traffic jam when there's no accident or anything like that but then they slowly um, you know increase the distance and are driving again safely so these are density perturbations that happen so with regard to a star like our sun you have the star speeding up uh, slowing down as the density wave the arm comes in and then staying there in the arm and then speeding out as the density wave uh, overtakes the star. Ah, so it's like the compression wave in a spring. Exactly, yeah. Well, your description there is very interesting, Addy, because as it happens, I have just, I'm just about to submit my next Canberra Times column and I talk about phantom traffic jams. Oh, excellent. Although I don't use that term. Well, um, so what was his uncertainty in the spiral arm story? Why was he um, so hedging his bet on why we... I mean, because you gave a good description there of where they come from. Why is he unsure about this? The biggest question is, where do you get the initial disturbance from? And that is completely unknown. Anyone could take a guess at it being a disturbance that exists when the galaxy forms... Or it could be caused by small galaxies or maybe uh, stars that are falling through the galaxy disk just like that. And that causing this initial disturbance, which then gets grows over um, 200 or so million years, shears across and forms the arm. So it's, there's that question, where do you get the initial disturbance from? There are a couple of other models that were uh, that had been hypothesized in the 1960s uh, where they thought it was just the density waves that were allowing this, but those mechanics have now been modelled, and it doesn't seem to be the case. This is the strongest uh, uh, theory that's out there now, and over the next few years to decades, as new observations take place, they'll be able to constrain these models and uh, hopefully finally answer the question, wow. how do the arms form in the spiral galaxy? That's amazing. You know, we walk outside and we look up at the stars and, and it looks like a fixed pattern, you know, and, and there's always there. I mean, they move as a constellation, as a group of constellations from one night and one from one hour to the next. And we've seen those star trail a long time, the time lapse. But, you know, they're, they're, they're always there. And we tend to think of the universe as... In our experience, it's a very fixed and stable thing. But what I think you're telling me is that it's a fantastically dynamic and and the, we run out of uh, words to describe big. 
It's an exciting universe. It's got everything going for it. At times it's chaotic, at times it's deterministic, and that's the fun of it. You know, it 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 just works, and it's beautiful to look at through a telescope. They are beautiful words, Eddie. I I, that, I find that wonderful what you've just said. That that to me is the the feeling that I get when I look at the stars, and I think, wow. Right. And uh, that, what better way to finish the uh, the Fuzzy Logic Science Show with with some very profound thoughts such as that? But guess what? Stay tuned to Fuzzy Logic. We've got fantastic things in store for you. We are running on all five cylinders here at Fuzzy Logic. Uh, so let me tell you a little bit what's coming up. So next Sunday on Fuzzy Logic, we have Dr. Kristen Pammer and my old pal uh, Nisa Skelton. What better way to spend a Sunday hour? Then uh, this we're going to be talking about neuroscience. We had some neuroscientists on not long ago, and I love brain science. And Dr. Kristen Pammer is from uh, the ANU, and she's her particular interests are synesthesia, uh, dyslexia, and they are having trouble getting the word there, so I'm probably experiencing something like it right <laughs> now, and attention, and the way, the way the brain works, amazing stuff. And also we've mentioned in June we have Dr. Phil Nicholson, a visiting guest from the United States. What better guest can you ask for than that? Mm-hmm. Also, I've just arranged another author to come on the show. This is Dr. Lynn Milne. She's the author of a book called The Grain of Truth. And she studies pollen and she's used it for forensic oh, science wow. and uh, how you solve crimes with it. And um, I've also lured back onto the show old-time fuzzy person from some time back, Suzette Searle, who's an expert in wattles. And so we're going to do a telephone hook up to, the, to West Australia, and we're going to be talking about pollen and uh, all the interesting things about that and how you can use it to solve crimes and more. Yes, there's more. This week we met Stephanie and Felicity, who are organisers of the Australian Science Festival, and we're hoping to do some live on-site broadcasts from the Australian Science Festival. So until then, be fuzzy to one another. My name is Rod. Special guest today is Aditya Chopra, PhD student from the Planetary Science Institute at the ANU. Thank you very much for coming in Thank this morning. Thank you for having me, Rod. It was a pleasure. Oh, it's a lots of fun. And stay tuned. Uh, this is Community Radio 2XX. <laughs> <laughs>